Yeah, thanks for your prayers on that trip. We head out early tomorrow, and there's going to, you know, going to London sounds like uh, that'd be just fun and a vacation, and I suppose it could be, but uh, <laughs> not so much. Um, uh, there is one day off in the middle of the week, and so that's good. But we'll get in on Friday, start ministering all day on Saturday with a church I used to do some work with on the east side of London, and then through into Saturday night, back with that church Sunday morning, journey over to the west side of London and be with a church over on the west side with uh, Brenton Temple Cundall and be with all of that church Sunday evening, and then in meetings with uh, Brenton Temple through the week, working on their own calling and how they work that out some street evangelism, stuff like that with, uh, in the um, Hindu and Islamic community there in Hounslow. And, and, um, so it'll be a blast. And, and, uh, and it will drink warm beer, and it'll be a very exciting time. I, yeah, that's right. It's, it's England. Yeah, that's right. It'll be fun. I'll, I'll, I'll get to work on my sort of South London accent while I'm there or something, you know, and <laughs> see how I can do. All right. Uh, what I want you to do is turn in your study guide to page 45. Um, there's just a little section I want to pick up on here, um, and then we'll tuck into the remaining text, which is Romans 8, beginning in verse 31. But before we get there, I do want us to pick up on this little phrase, which I want to introduce to you. Some of you may be familiar with it. It's a Latin phrase. I mentioned it last week. That has to do with Romans eight, twenty nine and thirty. There are other scriptures, of course, that we would bring to bear on this, but I, I don't want us to get through this section of Romans without at least a kind of surface introduction to this issue. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined, these he called, and those whom he called, these he also justified, and those whom he justified, these he also glorified. So the phrase that's there in your study guide is ordo salutis, which is an, um, a fun little Latin phrase. It simply means the, the order of salvation. And what it is is an attempt to logically lay out the path by which God works in the life of sinners to make them his own. So it, it's, it's not necessarily, uh, there are various aspects of it that um, are included that uh, are simultaneous. It's not an exact chronological order. But it is somewhat chronological, but more than anything, it's a kind of logical order. And it begins with this issue of being foreknown and then predestined and then called and then justified and then glorified. So Paul lays out this kind of path that God is on. Now, of course, something like predestination troubles people. They, get, they, they stumble over that, you know. But there's no avoiding it in the text of Scripture. Predestination is a very great biblical word. And so the question isn't whether or not it's a biblical word, uh, but rather what it means and how it is used. And this is a good example of where predestination is used in the sense of the 
the goal that's in view for those who are called by grace. God has given you a destiny ahead of time, and it is to be conformed to the image of Christ. More often than not, when people talk about predestination, they talk about um, geography. Where are you going? Rather than, rather than transformation, who are you becoming like? And so I want us to note that distinction. When we talk about predestination, it's perfectly valid to talk about geography. Where do people end up eternally? You can have that discussion. But sometimes that discussion eclipses this issue, which is that those who are called by God in his grace to be his own people have been given this destiny, that they are to be conformed to the image of Christ. That's God's goal in our lives. And he says here in this verse that Christ, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. This reminds us that Christ, one of the ways in which Christ is referred to in Scripture is as our elder brother. He is our elder brother. We have, as Paul's been pointing out here in Romans chapter 8, been given sonship. We are joint heirs with Christ. We are the adopted children of God. And that has bestowed on us this status. That makes Christ our elder brother. Now, you know the task of the elder brother, right? The task of the elder brother in that Hebrew culture was to be the redeemer kinsman, to go after those members of his family, his younger brothers, if you will, who were trapped. They were trapped either by an enemy force having been taken captive or trapped in indebtedness. But he would go after them. And, of course, the great, the great problem of the younger brother in Jesus' story about two brothers, the prodigal, the younger one, demands his inheritance and goes to a distant country, to Gentile territory, because there he's, he's slopping the hogs, and you're not going to get a bacon sandwich within the borders of Israel. So he's gone off, to, he's gone off into exile. He's out there, and he's, he's impoverished. He is trapped. The fault of the younger brother is that he left home. The fault of his older brother is that he didn't. His older brother had the responsibility to go after him and bring him home. And not only did he not go after him and bring him home, when he finds his, older, his younger brother has come home, what's the attitude of the older brother? Why is he being celebrated? Why is there a, a joyful feast for him? You don't give me what I deserve. So it's, it's completely egocentric. Christ, the elder brother, is the one who has pursued us and made us his own. He's the one who throws the party and rejoices in our homecoming. But he has gone to the distant country. He has come after us to rescue us and bring us home. And he has made us his, if you will, younger brothers. He's the firstborn among many brothers. And these brothers, this, these, these siblings, bear the family likeness. We will, in the end, be conformed to the image of Christ. Sometimes people notice that my brother looks vaguely like me. He's my little brother. He's six years younger than me. 
but he's a lot taller and a lot wider, and, and uh, some of the guys in the back have threatened to use his back as an extra screen for projecting words on when people sing. So Steve's a big guy, and, and uh, he has threatened on occasion to introduce himself around town as me and create as much trouble as possible for the church. So you need to pray hard for him, you know. There's a family likeness. And that's really what's going on here. This destiny that we've been given ahead of time has to do with bearing the image of Christ. Well, the predestined are those, he says, who are foreknown. Those who are foreknown. Now, foreknowledge has a couple of aspects to it. There's the issue of simply knowing ahead of time. That's foreknowledge, knowing ahead of time. That's one issue. But you have to remember that the word known or knowing in a biblical sense has to do with relationship. It's a relational word. And it has the connotation of, well, really the denotation of setting love upon someone. I will set my love upon you. And so this usage of the term shows up in a number of different places in the text of Scripture. Look at Romans 11, verse 2, for just a moment. This is jumping ahead to next term. But Romans 11, verse 2, God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that God had awareness of His people ahead of time? Well, that would be true of everyone. That would be true of everyone. But God has foreknown the people of Israel. What does that mean? Well, that term comes up in the book of Amos, in the prophet Amos, chapter 3, verse 2. And um, you don't have time to turn there unless you just want to. Uh, it's Hosea, Joel, Amos. But I'll, I'll read this to you, Amos, chapter 3, verse 2, um, where... The Lord talks about his people and he says, You only have I known among all the families of the earth. Another translation is, You only have I chosen among all the families of the earth. You are my elect, you are my known. To be foreknown is another way of saying chosen, the chosen people. And God chose them. And we looked at this passage back in Deuteronomy a few Sundays ago where God says, don't think for a second that I chose you because you were stronger or mightier or larger because actually you were the fewest of all. I chose you because I loved you and I'm a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. That's Deuteronomy Chapter 7, verses 7 through 9. Don't think I chose you. Don't think that you, you are mine, you're foreknown, on the basis of some good thing in you. So you see what happens is sometimes when people say foreknowledge means God knows ahead of time, well, he does. But that would mean that God chooses on the basis of an outcome he sees in you, something good in you. But God's choice of people, God's knowing of them, is not based on something good in us. In fact, it says we are the weakest of all. God does know everything that will happen. 
He knows what may happen and doesn't. In 1 Samuel, you might want to write this down, 1 Samuel 23, verses 7 through 14, there's an instance where David is trapped in the wilderness. And he goes into a particular city. I think it's Keilah, something like that. And um, Saul is after him. And David prays and he says, Lord, will the people of this city hand me over to Saul? And God says, they will. And David says, okay. Now, of course, David gets up and leaves because God's told him what would happen if he stayed. But, of course, did it happen? No, it didn't happen. So God now knows not only what will be, God knows what could be and doesn't occur. So there is no limit to the knowledge of God ahead of time. God knows all things. But this word known, foreknown, you only have I known of all the people of the earth, shows up in Genesis. And I've talked about this on a couple of other occasions, those of you who have been with me in some other studies. It's translated as known in Genesis when it talks about the relationship that's sexual, the intercourse between Adam and Eve. In the King James Version, it says, Adam knew Eve. It's a very polite term, isn't it? He knew her, all right? And she conceived and bore a son. So it's talking about a relationship. He knew her. It doesn't mean that he understood her. No husband has ever fully understood his wife. Let's be clear. Not even Adam and Eve. But he knew her. All right, which is to say he was joined to her in love. They became one. The Hebrew word is yada, Y-A-D-A. He knew her. It's a relational word. And that word is still used today in Yiddish. If you were a Seinfeld fan, you heard that word used all the time. You know, Bob met Mary, yada, yada, yada. All right, and what do they mean? Well, they were just, that's their way of saying they got together. All right, it's a relational term. That's the word that is in Amos. That's the idea that's at work here. God has set his love on someone. And when he does that, he gives them a destiny. When he chooses them, he gives them a destiny. And this destiny is to be conformed to the image of Christ. And then what happens is that God, in your life, calls you. He calls you. Now, this brings us back to an earlier section of Romans chapter 1, and we talked about this word a little bit, but uh, look back in Romans chapter 1 for just a moment, if you will, verse 6. He says, he says, talking to the Romans, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ, saints, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He talks to the church as the called, the called ones. Now, the word church, the Greek word for church, ekklesia, that's where we get the word ecclesiastical, ekklesia, is a word that is made up of this prefix, ek, which means out of, and calling, or it's the Greek term is kaleo, ek. Kaleo, Ecclesia, the called out ones. That's what the church is, the called. What makes somebody a part of the church? God calls them to himself. Sometimes when we use the term calling, usually when we use the term calling, we think of it as a vocation. What's your calling? 
What are you called to do? But it's important for us to remember that biblically speaking, and there's nothing wrong with that use of the word calling, but the primary biblical meaning is not a vocation, but a relationship. You've been called to God. You have been called from death to life. You've been made part of the believing community. You are part of the ek kaleo, the called out ones, the ekklesia. You're the chosen, the elect of God. The word elect is very similar in Greek, eklektos. It's the chosen, the called out ones. So calling here refers not to a vocation that you've been given, but a relationship with God which he brings you into by speaking. He speaks to you. Peter says, you are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is communicated to us through God's living and abiding word. So what's happened is at some point in your life, the gospel came to you. The Holy Spirit took the message about Jesus, and through that message, the Holy Spirit applied that message in a living way in your soul and brought you to life. Now, you may remember that moment, or you may not. You may not be able to point to a particular moment that said, that's when I moved from death to life. Some people have that experience. Not everybody does. I used to argue with my dad about this all the time and tell him he was going to hell because he didn't know the day or the hour of his salvation. That was a great help in our relationship when I used to talk to him that way. And finally, he said to me, I don't need to know what time dawn was to know the sun's up. And that pretty much ended that discussion. So I think that's true. He used to say some people have halogen bulb conversions and some people have dimmer switch conversions where the light just kind of slowly comes on. But so whether you're a halogen Christian or a dimmer switch Christian, it really doesn't matter. The whole issue is that God called you and made you his own. And then it says those whom he called, these he also what? Justified. And we've already spent a lot of time on justification, so I don't want to do that today. We know what that is. And then there's this end of the process, glorified, glorified. Those whom he's justified, these he also what? Glorified. Now, glorification is used of the end of the process. But notice the tense here. The tense is what? Past. From God's perspective, this is already a finished work. The destiny you've been given, which was given you before time even began, all your days, Psalm 139 says, were written in God's book when as yet there were not one of them. Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life today because of your efforts or because of God's? It's God's. It's God's work. It's God's grace. And he will see you through to the end. It is on the basis of this great and deep and profound work of God's laboring love that Paul comes to this question in verse 31. And now you can come over to page 47 in your study guide. What then shall we say to these things? What then shall we say to these things? What do we say? Now, to say something is to confess it. It is a trustworthy statement, Paul says to Timothy, deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am chief. Paul has a number of trustworthy sayings in 1 Timothy. In 2 Corinthians, the scriptures say, this is chapter 4, we believe and therefore we speak. What then shall we say? 
When we say something, we're confessing our faith. So what's our confession of faith based on everything that Paul has just said? Based on this ordo salutis, based on the fact that we're now joint heirs with Christ, based on the fact that we have died and been buried and united to a new husband who is Christ, Romans chapter 7 and 6, we've been united to him. What then shall we say to these things? So what Paul does here is affirm God's work in verses 31 through 34. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. So the very first thing Paul says in response to, in a way of summing up everything that he's been saying basically in chapter 5 through this point in chapter 8 about being in union with Christ, the very first thing he does is he goes back to that courtroom verdict. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He doesn't ask this question, who is against us? Well, that list would be long. That would be a long, long list of who was against the Roman believers, starting with Nero, starting with many members of their own households, starting with death and sin. The sin is a power, remember, in Romans. And, and Satan himself. But that's not how Paul begins. He doesn't ask who's against us. He never denies that there are those who could line up against us. What he's saying is this. If God is for us, then who is against us? In other words, in comparison with who God is, what is the power of all of these opponents? Well, they're brought to nothing. He says in this text that he who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for, his, for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? And so God's love is seen and labor of love is seen in the cross of Jesus, in the offering up of the Son. And this means that there is nothing that he will withhold from us. If he has already done that, if, the, if God's love has already gone so far that he would offer his own son, then what makes us think for even a second that something less than that would be withheld? He's already done this. When we doubt whether or not God is for us, what Paul is saying is that we simply need to look back at the cross. And so then, he says, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Now, a charge in the legal setting brings up this arch enemy of our soul. Satan is a Hebrew word. We think of Satan as a name. But a Satan, a Satan, is a legal courtroom term. And it means an accuser or 
an adversary at court, an opponent. Um, Let me show you a couple of places where the word Satan shows up, but it's not translated that way. Um, Come back with me to uh, 1 Kings chapter 11, 1 Kings 11, and uh, we'll have a look there. 1 Kings 11. And and here we're going to run into the word. And we'll, we'll realize that um, we see something more than a person with horns and a pointy tail. In 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 14, let's look over there. The Lord raised up an adversary to Solomon, Hadad the Edomite, who was of the royal line of Edom. Then look at verse 23. God also raised up another adversary to him, Rezon, the son of Eliada. And then verse 25, he was an adversary to Israel all the days of Solomon. And then in verse 26, then Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Do you see that term adversary? That's the word Satan. An opponent. In the courtroom, the person who is bringing an accusation, somebody who's looking to undermine, some some person who is looking to oppose you, that is a Satan. And so when Paul talks about somebody bringing a charge against God's elect, he's noting that the sentence or the verdict has already been passed. God is is the one who justifies. So there are no charges that can be successfully brought by Satan anymore. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Back in Romans 8 now. Christ Jesus who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. So in the face of every single accusation which could be laid, every charge that could be brought against your soul, Christ is on high at the right hand of the Father saying, no, those charges cannot stand. I am your mediator. I am the one who intercedes for you. My blood stands between you and and the successful charge that you are still a sinner. No, you are one of my holy brothers. That's what Christ says. That's what his blood does. In John, 1 John, the apostle says, I'm writing these things to you so that you don't sin. (laughs) But then he says, but if anybody does, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Advocate, that's a legal term. That's a courtroom term. Our attorney, our attorney, the defense attorney, if you will, is greater in power than the Satan, the adversary, the accuser. He is far greater because our justification is based on what God has done in Christ. This is the one who intercedes for us. So our standing before God, listen to this, beloved, 
our standing with God today is rooted not in our performance, but in the offering of Christ on the cross and the intercession of Christ before the throne. Now, let's think about that for just a second. How adequate was Christ's offering of himself on the cross? It was perfectly adequate. How powerful is Christ's intercession for us in heaven? It is certainly powerful. So is there any reason for us today to be frightened, to be worried that somehow God will reject us, that somehow the enemy will sweep us away? No, because the cross of Christ and the intercession of Christ are enough for us to be secured. That's why he turns now to this relentless, redeeming love of God in verse 35. Let's look at that. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? You've been united to Christ. Romans chapter 7. Remember, Paul's looking back and keeping this all in view. You've died. You were married to the law. You died. You've been raised. You've been united to a new husband. Here's what Paul's asking. Is there anything in the universe that could cause Christ to annul his marriage with you? And you could say, well, I I think I could give him many reasons if I looked in the mirror. I look at my life and I, I... Okay, but when we see our brokenness and we see our sinfulness and our fallenness, and then we understand that we're still so loved, that should not incite in us doubt about his love It should incite in us gratitude for the magnitude of his mercy. If we think that our sins are greater than what he did at the cross, our problem is pride. If we think that our sins are greater than his intercessory work before the Father, our problem is pride. If we think for a second that what we've done is more powerful than his love for us, we're in serious pride. You may cloak it as depression or anxiety, but at the end of the day, it's pride. And you need to lay that pride in the dust and say, yes, I am a sinful person, but Christ has married me. And there is nothing that will make him annul his relationship with me. He died for me. He ever lives to intercede for me. And his love, that is not not something from which I can be separated. He says, can anything separate us from the love of God? And so what he does here is he lines up the usual suspects. He he says, um, says, uh, well, what about tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril? Or sword. Just as it is written, for thy sake we are being put to death all day long, we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Now I want you to note that in verse 36. What Paul is saying is in verse 36, and it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's quoting from, from the Psalms, this is the ordinary experience of everyday believers. This is the ordinary experience of the Roman Christians. Remember, who's the emperor? 
Nero. Nero. And the the Romans would afflict the believers in horrible ways. Persecution was the lot of the early Christians. He says, we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. There was not a valuing of life in the Roman world. The Roman world did not value human life. And Christians were regarded and became openly so under Nero as those who were subversive to the empire, as political criminals. And they were crucified and beheaded and so on. And so Paul says, this is our lot. So if you're facing tribulation and distress and persecution and famine, you might think, because I'm in these situations, um, God has forsaken me. Now let's think about that. That's theology as old as the book of Job. Job, what did you do to make God leave you in this condition? We think that the love of God towards us is seen when things are going well. But then when we suffer, then God has abandoned us. That God's love is not upon us. That's not the case. Paul said, here's our common experience. This is what we experience. But can any of these things actually separate us from the love of God? And Paul's answer to that is an emphatic no. No, in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Through him who loved us. He says, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, God's love, and I've used this word for it, is ferocious. God's love is a fierce love. How ferocious is murder? How fierce is hate? How... Strong is the sword. How threatening, if you will, or powerful is death. God's love is more ferocious and stronger than every single one of those threatening adversaries. And not only those things which we experience in life, like death and so on, but even invisible powers angels and principalities. Not even all of the powers of darkness arrayed against your soul. If every single principality and power that existed were collectively brought together and arrayed against the bond of love between you and God, if every single demonic force attacked you and that bond, every one of them, all at once, They would not have enough power to sever the bond between you and Christ. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And so height, depth, nor any other created thing, this is what I could just call the geometry of love. Is there a place in the universe where you can escape the love of God? No. Jonah found that out, didn't he? He got as far away from God as he could. He went all the way to Tarsus, furthest place in the planet he thought he could get from. Suppose someone said, I want to escape from God. I'm going to Mars. 
right? You know, I'm going to escape from God. I'm going to go into the depths of the ocean. Is there any place we can go in the created universe to escape the love of God? No. There is no aspect of the created order. There's nothing to come in the future that can separate us from the love of God. So the summary of the whole thing is this. The love that was ours in eternity past and displayed in the cross in history and poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 5 in our experience. That same love that brought Christ to the cross, the same love poured into our hearts through the Spirit, the same love that in eternity past chose us and made us his own is the love that cannot let us go and will not let us go and will carry us all the way into a future which God has brought about for us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul brings something very beautiful to us in these words. And one of the best commentators on this that I ever came across, Robert Haldane, wrote, In looking back on this passage, we should observe that in all that is stated, man acts in no part, but is passive. All is done by God. Man is elected and predestined and called and justified and glorified by God. The apostle is concluding that all he had said before in enumerating topics of consolation to believers and is now going on to show that God is for us on the part of his people. Could anything then be more consolatory to those who love God than to be in this manner assured that the great concern of their salvation is not left in their own keeping? 